Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 73rd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Jared Hecht, co-founder and CEO at Fundera. Jared is a serial entrepreneur who credits his success to the combination of a lot of hard work and, yes, a bit of luck. He was a co-founder of GroupMe, a group messaging app that was acquired for around $85 million just about one year after the company was started. His latest company is Fundera, a marketplace for small businesses who are looking for financing options. To date, the company has helped 15,000 small businesses secure well over $850 million through its platform. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Jared's early career aspirations to be in the music industry, including the story of how he offered Vampire Weekend to be their manager, how he landed at Tumblr when it was a very early stage company and what he learned there, the full story on GroupMe, including how he met his co-founder Steve Martosi and how they were able to get traction that ultimately led to an acquisition by Skype, all the details on Fundera, plus the social mission behind the company and how they are filling such a critical gap in our economy by supporting small business owners, the hardest parts of building a company, how he evaluates talent at different stages of a business, advice for evaluating investors when raising capital, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. If you're thinking about making a job change, then you need to head over to the VentureViz job board. You'll see lots of amazing opportunities across all job functions at the hottest companies in the New York tech scene. Don't put your career on hold. Start searching now by going to VentureViz.com backslash jobs. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jared. Jared, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Jared, so I was uh, doing quite a bit of research on you prior to this interview, and I found this, um, I think it was an article written by Columbia uh, that, you know, they interviewed you uh, during your time at uh, GroupMe, and I learned that you, were, you had a strong interest in the music industry and potentially you wanted to be a, a manager for, for bands. And uh, like there was this story that you talked about, about um, Vampire Weekend, where you actually had the opportunity to ask them to be their manager as a band. So tell me about that story. Yeah, there was um, there was like some party at Columbia is a little strange. There's like some fraternities and sororities there, but then there are also like these things like literary societies that have like these huge townhouse buildings. Mm-hmm. And there was a party at one of them, and I went, and there was this amazing band playing, and I had never seen them before. Um, and at that point in time, like Vampire Weekend was still like the Columbia band. Um, and it was the first time I had seen him, but I hadn't like heard much about them before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was an intern at a music magazine. It's like this jam band magazine called Relics, um, which is like very near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was like, you know, cool big wig who was an intern at a music magazine. Um, <laughs> and I heard them play and uh, I was just like enamored with their music. It was so it was like, you know, all the tracks and then some other ones that didn't make it onto their first album. Um, and a super high energy, amazing concert in like this very, very small room inside this townhouse. Um, and I just walked up to them right after I was like, Hey, you know, I love that. I work at relics. Can I be your manager? (laughs) (laughs) I think you guys are going to be the next big thing. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah. I mean, you know, they're like, you know, we're thanks. I appreciate it. We're well represented. Um, (laughs) that's a manager in Vermont or something. Um, that's really but, cool. Yeah, so that didn't work out, but I was able to actually interview them for this like subsidiary website of relics called jambands.com and interview their. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so well, let's go. That was worth a worth shot. <laughs> well, if you don't ask, you'll never know. Exactly right. <laughs> so, where did you grow up, and like, you know, what did your parents do for work? Kind of that foundational years. 
Sure. I mean, I'm kind of like, I call myself a mutt. Like I was born in San Francisco, lived there for seven years, then Arizona for seven years, and then in New Jersey for four years where I went to high school. And I've been in New York City ever since college. Um, my parents were both doctors, um, still are doctors. Uh, and we kind of just moved around because my dad was just getting new jobs across the country. Um, so the foundational years took me, I guess, all across the country. I kind of like consider my most foundational years in New York City. Um, when I went to school, um, or I went to college. Um, but yeah. So uh, now what was, so obviously you had this passion for music and was that what you wanted to do professionally was actually work in the music industry? Yeah. Well, I mean, at that point in time, um, like in, in, I've always played music and many different instruments, had a bunch of bands in high school. Um, and then in college, it's kind of like hard to play a lot of music in New York city. Like there aren't a lot of spaces to play music in New York city. Um, but I, I kind of like became infatuated with this guy named Bill Graham, who was like legendary concert promoter, um, who like threw all of like the very, very early Grateful Dead shows and then the Fillmore's and the music festivals. And it was just like the man, mm-hmm. um, like long past, but the man. Um, and I remember I went to a music festival when I was in, in high school. And I was like standing on the top of this hill and there were like 10,000 people in front of the stage, like all there just celebrating music. And I would just remember like looking down on the stage and like out across all these people and being like, I want to throw events like this one day mm-hmm. um, and like bring this much joy to all these different types of people um, and bring them together through music. Um, so when I was in college, I always thought like, perhaps I want to get into the music industry, hence, you know, becoming an intern at a music magazine, um, managing a couple different bands, started a music marketing and production company. Um, so that was kind of the route that I thought I really did want to go down when I first started in college. Very cool. Yeah. But then, so then obviously you ended up in the tech industry and you were a, yeah. at the really early stages of, of Tumblr, right? Mm-hmm. So like started working in the music industry. And then I think one of the weird things that happens um, or at least happened to me when I started working in the music industry was that going to shows and throwing shows um, and working with like the bands you love to help them market their music and attract more people to their concerts made it that live music experience for me more work than pure joy. And like, I actually just, uh, I wouldn't say like I lost my love of music by any means whatsoever. Like I still go to a ton of concerts, but like going to shows became more about like producing a thing um, as opposed to just like being there to enjoy the music. Yeah. And at that point in time, I was like, you know what? I don't want to do that. I don't want to like compromise my love of music. Um, and then, you know, I kind of like suffer the same type of crisis that most people towards the end of college go through, which is what the hell am I going to do with my life? Right. Um, <laughs> um, but by that point in time, it kind of became very crystal clear to me that I wanted to at least one day start my own business. I had no idea what kind of business it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at the end of school, uh, I, it was, it looked very likely that I was going to go do this program called teach for America. Mm-hmm. And then a couple months before I graduated, um, serendipitously, the, I got introduced to, uh, a guy named John Maloney, who was then the president of Tumblr. Um, and this is, I guess, in 2009. Um, uh, he was the uncle of my, one of my best friends and neighbors from New Jersey. And my friend was at a family reunion and he gave him this uh, book 
This book was like a guidebook to New York City. It was this book that I had produced and published as an undergraduate at Columbia. And John was like, oh, we want to get connected to him. I'm looking to just like hire somebody who can just help me just be like mm-hmm. a generalist. And we got connected and um, I was you know, super pumped about the opportunity to go work at an early stage startup and especially a startup like Tumblr um, who had such a terrific product. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was early or like six or seven people at Tumblr. And I just thought it would be a terrific opportunity to a join a really smart group of people who uh, knew a lot more about the world of tech startups than I did and be kind of get like an on the floor opportunity to see how a, a, a like a tech startup was built and how a business is ultimately built. That's cool. So, so it's cool. pure, pure luck. And what did you work on while you're at Tumblr? A little bit of everything. Um, so business development, which was getting um, brands to actually join the Tumblr platform and start using it um, to, you know, create original content, distribute content, whatever it might be. Um, worked on um, our international strategies. So what was our strategy for entering new markets and then localizing those markets and how should we actually think about that? Um, worked on analytics. Um, so actually just like setting up reports and measuring progress and how everything was performing and trending and uncovering insights that would hopefully help inform product decisions. Although I don't know if they ever did. Um, and then budget stuff, honestly, like finance stuff, uh, putting together spreadsheets, modeling out how the business was going to perform over time. And John, um, my boss there, the president, um, just gave me so much exposure that I didn't deserve or hadn't earned by that point in time. Like, he'd bring me to board meetings and have me present materials, and I got to see how boards operated and the types of questions that they would ask and how they thought about the business. And it was just really um, such a, a privilege to have somebody like John take me under his wing and David, the CEO, to honestly just be so cool and understanding and embrace it as well. We definitely fully leverage that, you know, startup experience of being able to wear so many different hats and get exposed to so many facets of the business that, you know, it was uh, kind of that, you know, real world MBA to start your own company, which you ultimately did. Now, obviously the, the group me story is amazing. So I want to get into that. But so how did you meet your co-founder, Steve, of, of group me? Um, through live music. So we share a passion for live music. We, Grew up seeing the same bands, going to the same shows. Um, we're both lovers of a band called the Disco Biscuits and Fish. So we really met um, through going to these concerts. And he also had a like a side, well, it wasn't a side project. He also had a music startup, which was like a, a friends and family ticketing platform um, where bands and festivals could better manage like their guest list. Um, and he was working with a lot of the same artists that um, I was working with at that point in time with this other um, startup that I had in college called Mixbag. So we met when I was in college through music. And then like the idea behind GroupMe, it actually was solving a problem of attending music festivals, right? It was your, it was yeah. your, your girlfriend at the time or like? Yeah, I guess it was, yeah, a girlfriend who's now my wife and yeah. mother of our two kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Carrie, um, Carrie woke up one morning and she started uh, complaining because she was on an email thread Mm-hmm. Um, of a bunch of friends trying to attend a music festival out on the West Coast, I believe. Um, and she was saying how silly it was that they had to communicate over email on like this reply all email chain. And once they got to the event, by the way, this was like not when everybody had a smartphone, believe it or not, like mm-hmm. people were still using Blackberries and whatnot, um, and sometimes feature phones. 
but when it came time to actually get to the event, like they couldn't use this email chain anymore to stay in touch with one another. Hey, where are you? Let's coordinate going there. Let's coordinate leaving. Let's meet up by this place, whatever. Um, and you know, just said, why, why can't we just do this over text message? And you couldn't reply all over SMS. There was no iMessage. There was no service that enabled anybody to do that. Um, and I'm, I'm, um, I'm not technical, right? Like, so I don't have a degree in computer science, nor have I ever been a software engineer. Um, and Steve, um, was always, uh, like the smartest person I've known. Um, and we would always bounce ideas back and forth off one another. Like, Hey, what about this idea? What about that idea? I would always just constantly try and pitch them all these ideas in the hopes that one day we would start something together and none of them were good. Um, <laughs> until this one, um, where I called up Steve and was like, Hey, why can't we do this? We would actually use something like this. And we remember we had like a three hour phone conversation and we just started talking about what a service like that could evolve into. Um, like start with reply all SMS and then what all the features you could build on top of that. What would a, you know, a native mobile application look like that enabled better group communication. Um, and that's how it all started. Because it's one of those things we take it for granted now, but back then, yeah. I mean, so this was like 2010, where you couldn't actually do that, and it just yep. Uh, so it's you know solving a real world problem, right? But the, but so then you entered uh, TechCrunch, TechCrunch Disrupt, and you, you built it during their hackathon, right? Yeah. Yeah, so their that, hackathon happened to be like a couple days away from that initial phone conversation. And Steve had just won an internal hackathon at Guilt Group where he was, he was working before. Um, I was like, yeah, we should enter this. And we went and we, we built a prototype and like overnight over like 12, 18 hours. And it was working. And that was the very beginning of GroupMe. Okay, so now you built this prototype, it's working, right? And, um, you know, you obviously built a product that was solving a real problem, yet from what I've listened to in prior interviews, you guys were hustling too. Like you were walking the halls of Disrupt and running into people like Ron Conway. Like, like yeah. you know, so you weren't like just sitting there like, oh, this is cool, we did that, yay. Like you were like, no, let's, you know, we built a product. Oh yeah, yeah, let's No, we were like, the second it started working, we were like, let's, we're both gonna quit our jobs and we're gonna go pursue this full time. Let's go make that a reality. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, so, how did you get initial funding though? Was it through that, you know, that those TechCrunch connections? I mean, cause you raised capital from General Catalyst and Coastal Adventures. And yeah. So one of the people we met at the hackathon was a guy named Charlie O'Donnell, who at that sure. point in time was a principal at First Round Capital. Yep. Um, and he was like, this is neat. Let's talk more about it one day. And you know, it helped that like Steve was at Gilt Group and I was at Tumblr. So it wasn't like we were kind of like, you know, Joe Schmoes off the street. No, mm -hmm. we didn't know anybody or nobody had, you know, there was some, like minute built-in credibility and the fact that we were both working at those two places. Mm -hmm. So people took us almost remotely seriously. Um, uh, so, you know, Charlie really kind of helped get things off the ground in terms of uh, investor introductions. Mm -hmm. um, my parents were, were wonderfully supportive and said, hey, like, cool, we would love to support you and cut the first check. And that's what we first started operating with. Um, and then I went to my boss at Tumblr, who was also remarkably supportive and said, Hey, you should go do this and I'll give you money to go do this. Oh. <laughs> um, and you know, we just pulled together a group of really supportive people, um, who were users of the product, um, fans of what we were trying to do, um, and saw what we saw in terms of where it could go. 
I guess that's the good news. Like you're building a product that people can actually use and say, yeah, this oh, actually yeah. works. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it was, it was really cool. Like, um, the initial version of GroupMe, which is called Grouply, G-R-O-O-P dot L-Y, was um, we would assign a unique phone number for every single group that was created, and you would add people to a group with a series of text message commands. Mm -hmm. And there was one neat feature where if you called that phone number, everybody in the group's phone would ring, and it would immediately prompt a conference call um, with everybody. Mm -hmm. So when we were doing investor pitches, we would add investors to a GroupMe group, <laughs> and then we would say, hey, how you doing? This is Jared. This is Steve. Um, are you ready for our call? And then we would call the number and their phone would ring and they would be dropped into a conference call with all of us. And we would say, this is how the product works. And people would be like, that's neat. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So you hit this inflection point of uh, South by where like, that's where you guys start to see like major like consumer adoption of this, right? Um what you categorize by major um south by you know is always kind of like this event or used to be this event that would like capture the zeitgeist of what was new and exciting in the world of you know consumer applications consumer mm -hmm. mobile applications you know year one was twitter year what two was foursquare and year three was us and like we entered and well when we went there we said this is a great event for us to be at for a variety of reasons like a there's just like great buzz but b all these people that are coming here should be using group me like they should have multiple groups of people um so let's try and make sure that by the time we leave south by southwest everybody is using our product and everybody knows what group me is um and somehow we made that a reality um we uh we did this stunt where we got this location because somebody who worked at the communications firm that we work with, a firm called Brew PR, went to school in Austin and she knew about this burger shack that was literally right across the street from the convention center where like tens of thousands of people swarm every day. And we rented out this burger shack for like nothing because they were like, what? no one's ever done this before. You guys are crazy. And, what do you think? <laughs> and we had this idea, which was... <laughs> So if you go to, it was this homage to like the music, like all tying it back to music, like the music that we love. Like if you go to like a fish show or like a Grateful Dead show or some modern incarnation of the Grateful Dead, there's always like, there's like a shakedown street, right? And like in the parking lot and like you walk through these parking lots and there's always vendors, but like there's always one staple there, which is that there's always some type of grilled cheese stand where people are like loading up on grilled cheese before and after the show. And we were like, let's create a grilled cheese stand. <laughs> and give away free grilled cheese but you have to have the app installed and be using it to get a free grilled cheese uh -huh. and we created the stand and we had like this cool iron where we would brand all the um the grilled cheeses with the group me logo uh -huh. and we we're standing in line like there was always a not like a huge line waiting for free grilled cheese <laughs> and we were just there talking to people helping them get set up with the app a lot of them were already using the app and it was it was sweet that's awesome. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Who, a, who doesn't love grilled cheese, but you know, B, you know, you see the line, you're like, what, what's, what's going on? I need to be in this line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, South by, it doesn't have that buzz anymore. It's just like, you don't hear any like success stories coming out of that anymore. I mean, it's, um, it, uh, you know, it's evolved from its old yeah. school kind of grassroots, what's at the forefront of consumer and social technology to, you know, now it's a big, big time conference with thought yeah. leaders all across the globe attending and big brands spending a lot of money there. And that is what it is. You know, these things grow up and other things emerge. 
Yep, very true. Yeah. Now you're off to you know building a company. Yet one year later, you get acquired by Skype. Yep. So, so what was that year like? Was it just like you know? constant hustle, building new features, functionality, just trying to get, you know, consumer adoption. Yet all of a sudden people are pinging you saying, Hey, we're interested in buying your company. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, uh, it was super unsustainable. It was just nonstop. Um, it was intense. It's like, you know, you're trying to put out new versions of the app once a month, twice a month, become multi-platform. Like this is the time where like iOS and Android were taking off and it's like, how do you build, an iPhone application and an Android app and like support Blackberry and maybe Windows phone because there's this Windows phone thing. And is that important? Is it not important? We don't know. Should we actually invest there? Do we build a web application and a native desktop client? And like, so how do you support all these different clients? And then how do you continue to build features on top of all them in a world where nobody was doing that yet, right? Everybody was learning to do the exact same thing at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just a really interesting experience. So not only did we have to do that, while still figuring out how are we going to grow? How do we you know, take this product and make it more viral than it already is? Um, also, like we started with, it was a reply all text messaging service and we were paying for every single text message. And you know, we still have like these native um, you know, iPhone and Android applications where it's free for us because it's all over the top messaging where not, people aren't sending text messages, they're actually communicating in the app. But still like over half of the messages that were being sent were text message. Mm -hmm. And we got to the point where we started sending hundreds of millions and billions of text messages a month and we had to pay for every single one of them. Mm -hmm. And so we were struggling with how the hell are we going to keep this service alive and not just like bleed our bank account dry? Like, is this a sustainable thing? Mm -hmm. How do we mitigate these text messaging costs? How do we migrate people to native applications? And then while we were trying to figure all that out too, um, it was a massively competitive space. There were like so many other startups who were either building GroupMe clones or coming into the market with some other like different wedge or like hook. And not only was there pressure from a bunch of other startups, then there was like Facebook, like <laughs> Facebook Messenger, and like right. they bought one of our competitors, and there was Google and Hangouts, <laughs> and it was it was nonstop. It was like it, it just became like this massively hot space with everybody and their mothers trying to get into it. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it was intense. So, so the acquisition happens. Yeah. Um, so what did you learn, you know, working for, you know, Skype, which was owned by Microsoft? Like obviously that's, you know, not the grassroots startups that, that you guys have built. So what did you learn from working in more of a larger organization like Skype? Um, big companies are really hard. It's hard to move fast in a big company. Mm -hmm. um, it was also a really interesting, weird time because Skype had bought GroupMe and then before they bought us, they announced that they were being acquired by Microsoft, but the deal didn't close yet. So we didn't necessarily know what life was going to be like after Microsoft had bought Skype and Skype didn't really fully know what life was going to be like after Microsoft had bought Skype. So it was like, we became, we were like a, you know, a cool shiny object and top priority. And then all of a sudden Microsoft had a whole new slew of initiatives and priorities for Skype. So it kind of was like, hang out in New York city and do your thing. Just like keep on building fun stuff. Um, but we learned a lot um, over that course of time. Like we launched some products um, that didn't work. We launched a product called Group. Uh, group me experiences, which was like, you know, here are things for you to go do in the real world with your group of friends. Um, like go to this bar, go to this bowling alley, go to this cool film screening, go do this parachute adventure, whatever. Um, and that didn't work. 
Um, so like learned a little bit about um, how to try and actually like monetize a service like that somewhat unsuccessfully. Yeah, I think I learned like some really good management lessons as well. Um, like uh, the CEO of Skype, um, I remember um, walking into a meeting and just being like, you know, here's all these problems, you know, all this stuff is messed up. I don't know how we're going to get through this. And I just remember I'm like sitting back and being like, all I hear is problems. Like, why don't I hear any solutions? <laughs> right. And I was like, whoa, that's a really good line and like really good style. <laughs> so um, I, that was, I think, like just like a critical management lesson for me, which is like, don't whine and complain coming to the table with a series of problems. Like yeah. what the problems are and what the solutions are and ask for help on editing your solutions. Um, um, yeah, you know, I, I like to like think like that lesson was one of the most important lessons I learned. Well, you obviously moved on um, from Skype and started yeah. your next company, which you want to dig deep into. So what was the, the, uh, the aha moment of, of starting Fundera? Um, so like I always knew I wanted to start another company after GroupMe because GroupMe was like a very short-lived experience, but I started reflecting on um, how I thought about what type of company I wanted to build. And for me, I wanted to continue to learn more things, steepen my learning curve. Um, and reflecting on my experience at GroupMe, you know, the things that I was really proud of that we had accomplished where we built a, a really good product that now tens of millions of people use every single day. And we built a really fun brand, right? Like it's now like a recognizable thing. Um, like, like almost, almost every single college student in the country uses Um But we never had an opportunity to turn it into a real business, meaning, you know, it didn't generate any revenue. And, you know, it was too short short-lived of an, of an experience as an independent company for it to ever be a real company. Mm -hmm. And the way I think about what a real company is, is something that has an absolutely transformative impact on an industry and also has a transformative impact on the career trajectory of, of your employees. Mm -hmm. So that when they look back at any given point in time, you know, let's just say 10 years in the future, they can point to their experience at Fundera and say, hey, this is the inflection point of my career. This was the yeah. steepest part of my learning curve. And I would not be where I am today without having had this experience. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, what I want to be able to do next is build a real business and build a real company. Mm -hmm. And that was the lens I was using as I was starting to evaluate new opportunities. And the opportunity for Fundera, the aha moment really came very similar to the way it happened with, with, with GroupMe, um, which was that um, my wife's cousin um, is an entrepreneur in Ohio. Um, he has a chain of restaurants called Fusion. And when I was at Skype, I, um, one of the ways I was, you know, staying stimulated and kind of paying it forward was uh, starting to do angel investing and advising a bunch of companies, tech companies, startups, you name it, um, fun entrepreneurs. And uh, I, I loved my cousin's business, Fusion. Um, it's a chain of restaurants. It's a sushi chain. Um, it's awesome. Like great food, great vibe. You know, it's kind of like sweet green, but for sushi. Um, in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I told Zach that I wanted to invest in his business to help him open up a third location at that point in time. And he said no, uh, because uh, he didn't want to be diluted, right? He wanted to maintain ownership of the business. And he asked for a loan instead. And I kind of told him to go F off um, because <laughs> I wanted to own a piece of the business. Right. And, you know, I kind of felt spited. Yeah. I told him to go to a bank uh, and get a loan. And he told me that he went to several different banks and was rejected by every single one of them. And that was a weird red flag moment for me mm -hmm. because he had two locations open. Both of those locations were profitable. 
using mm-hmm. several hundred thousand dollars in EBITDA employed like 50 or 60 people and couldn't get a loan to open up a third location with a proven business model. Um, it was something like a $300,000 loan, right? And I had just come from the world of the consumer web where the two companies I was previously at, Tumblr and GroupMe, were able to raise tens of millions of dollars in venture capital with zero dollars in revenue. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was very unclear that either of those companies would ever be able to generate any form of meaningful revenue or have any type of viable, profitable business model long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tumblr, it, I think it was much clearer how they were going to make money and did, you know, monetize um, Ruby. Definitely. It was super unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, how could we live in this world where we're able to raise all of these dollars to support businesses that may not work? because they don't make any money. And he lives in this world where he has a real business and he can't get a loan to open up a third location and go employ more people and grow. Um, so that was an aha moment. Like something mm-hmm. is broken here. What is going on? Um, so I went online. I had heard of um, this concept of online lending. Like I had heard of Lending Club in the US that was an online lender um, and providing consumers loans um, at fair rates. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if there was anything like that for small businesses. So I went online with Zach and we typed in small business loans and all the organic search results that we got back were all the banks that had just rejected him. <laughs> and all of the advertisements were what I would just categorize as payday lenders, predatory yeah. loan brokers, terrible lead generation services where you yeah. like enter in, you know, it's like a fake application where it's like enter in a little bit of information. And then all of a sudden you're getting cold called and spammed by a hundred different people that you never wanted to speak to in the first place. Right. And there was no objective source of truth, right? There was no like Wikipedia for small business lending or small business credit that neatly talked about, Hey, here are all the different products that are are alive and exist. Mm -hmm. Here's how they all work. Here's which ones are right for different types of businesses based on their needs and eligibility. Um, and there was no web application that enabled a small business owner to actually shop for credit the same way they shop for anything else online, which is like, let me see all of my options in one place and understand the difference in price and the benefits to me. And let me make an educated and empowered decision. It was as if the internet had not happened to the world of small business lending. And I still had some time at Microsoft. Um, and I spent some of that time just doing research and familiarizing myself with the space and doing a lot of diligence and ultimately came to the conclusion that a service like this needs to exist, right? There needs to be a service that can actually help educate and empower small business owners with great content and information, and then provide them an application to easily compare offers from different lenders um, that are best for their business based on their needs and eligibility and do it all in one place and actually have an advocate that has their back and will work with them, not just when they need capital, but in between times when they actually might need capital to help them improve their credit worthiness. And so they can get better and better products over time. And it was just a really compelling opportunity to be able to make the internet happen to the industry and do it in a way where you can actually support entrepreneurs and small business owners and help them achieve their dreams. I mean, it's so true. Like, I mean, SMBs power a, you know, very large percentage of our economy and you know very over few half of it over half okay and very few are companies that are a you know a company that you know someone's going to invest in like a vc firm or private equity and then like you were talking about with your wife's cousin like you know if you don't want to be diluted 
going to the bank down the street, even like the big brand name banks, it's just like yeah. pathetic how archaic the system is. And like, yeah, I mean, think about what they're going to do yes. too. Like you, you're going to walk into a bank and you're going to talk to a business banker, right? And they're going to say, hey, here are all the products our bank has to offer you. And you have no idea if they're better or worse than the bank next door. And what are you going to do? Walk into 18 different banks and be like, cool, what are the rates on this checking or savings account? And what are the terms on this business credit card? And will you actually provide me some type of line of credit or term loan or SBA loan? And how are those rates going to be you know, compared relative to other banks? Like it's all very focused on capturing that relationship and then selling you all of their products. And, you know, we don't really like, the internet makes that world not exist, right? It's like, you know, you think about what happened in the travel industry. Like you either used to work directly with a travel agent Mm -hmm. and that travel agent would like make money by putting you into the cruise line or the airline or the rental call service that would pay the travel agent the most amount of money, not necessarily the one that was best for you. And then all of us, or you used to go directly to an airline and you were like limited by the options that that airline would actually be able to provide you. And then all of a sudden services like Priceline or Expedia or Kayak emerge. And you can see all of your options out in front of you, customize them to your liking, whether it's based on price or you want to fly nonstop or one stop or two stops, whatever it might be. And you can make a purchasing decision feeling really good, like you made the right one. Yeah. And man, that did not exist for small business owners. So uh, if I was like, you know, owner of XYZ business and I, you know, go through Fundera, it's going to ultimately give me all my options, like you said, and travel like a kayak would. So then I can look and determine, okay, do I want to do the credit card route or I could go, you know, all these other different options that maybe I didn't even know exist. Exactly right. That's and I think that's the thing. Like most, you know, similar to that experience with Zach, it's like there are so many options out there, so many different types of products, so many different types of lenders that service very different types of needs mm-hmm. that mo- it's impossible for a small business owner, you know, unless you like hire a firm, in which case you should hire Fundera, um, to yeah. go out there and actually unlock and understand what all these different options are because there's a plethora of them. And very frequently, like you unlock or you uncover or discover something that you didn't know existed that's actually perfect for your needs. Um, and that's a, that's a problem. We're here to help solve that. Well, and what's, what's the scale of your business now as far as, you know, uh, employees and you know, companies you've helped or, you know, amount of uh, loans processed or whatever the sure. metrics are? Um, so we're roughly 110 employees now. Mm-hmm. Um, helped 15,000 small business owners now. Wow, 15,000. Yeah, yeah, it's that getting there. It's, it's really exciting. Um, and uh, you know, on our site, we have listed that we've done north of $850 million in financing. That number is now higher, and we're, we're really excited about it. We're about to make a big announcement. I wish I could share with you right now, but I can't. <laughs> um, and uh, we're, we're really excited about the scale we've been able to achieve and how many small business owners we've been able to help. And you know, it's interesting. Like, you, know, you start with an idea. I remember like, working out of my, my apartment starting this, and now we're at this place where we can say, oh, my gosh, you know, more than $850 million has like, been accessed through our marketplace and platform to help empower all these small business owners and entrepreneurs. It's just a really exciting thing. That's so awesome. Yeah. Now, how, how does your business work as far as the, the model? Like, how do you, you know, generate revenue for your company? Yeah, sure. So anytime, so a small business owner comes to us, we collect some information on them. We help them understand all the different products for which they're eligible. Um, and then we'll go to our lender network based on the information they provided us. 
and um, those lenders will come back and they'll provide that customer's offers, that, that customer a series of offers that they can then compare, contrast, and then select which one is actually the best fit for their needs. And um, we'll also have people there to talk to a customer if they actually want some on the phone advice or have questions about the way some of these products work or just you know want a friendly, friendly voice to help them you know, make the right decision. Um, and anytime a small business owner actually selects one of those offers and gets funded, the lender pays us what we call an origination fee um, for helping them successfully find a new happy small business owner customer that wants to do business with them. Okay. So, so the business doesn't, there's nothing out of pocket for them. For the small business owner, that's correct. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. So now that you're on to your second company, what's, what's the hardest part of uh, you know, building companies? Now you're you know, multi-time, I mean, you were starting companies actually when you were college too. So, you know, so what's the, the hardest part of starting a, a company that you're trying to scale like Monero? Well, I'm sure the hardest part is still ahead of us. Um, you know, uh, this is now the biggest company I've scaled. Um, it's, everything becomes more increasingly real day after day. Um, you know, companies go through different stages. They go through stages where it's like, let's build a thing. Let's figure out if people actually want this thing. Some people want this thing. Interesting. How do we get it in the hands of more people who actually want this thing? Um, a lot of people want this thing. Now, how do we scale this? And through every single one of those stages, you need a certain set of people with certain sets of skills, right? Sometimes you just need people to roll up their sleeves and figure things out. But as a company grows and in, in scale, right, you need people to come in to solve different types of problems and challenges that actually have a certain set of expertise solving that specific challenge. So I think the hardest part about scaling a company is making sure that you have the right people at the right point in time and making sure that the great people that you that you're privileged enough to work with and that join you along the way, you're continuing to provide them opportunities to grow and learn and develop those sets of expertise so that they can grow with the company. Um, people make all the difference. Uh, I, it might be a cliche thing to say. It might be something that a lot of entrepreneurs or CEOs talk about all the time. It's just because it's true, mm -hmm. right? Like, the ideas that help Fundera get to our next phase or the best ideas around how to help our customers, they're not going to come from me. They're going to come from everybody else inside mm -hmm. Fundera who have context and granular insight um, and are living and breathing in the weeds all the time and can actually say, hey, like we're, we notice our customers have this problem. How do we help them solve this? So honestly, the hardest part is just making sure you constantly have the best people to help you achieve your vision and mission. And how do you evaluate talent to make sure that you know, those people are the right fit for that stage of the business? Sure. So part of it is understanding what problem you're trying to solve over the course of the next 18 to 24 months, right? Sometimes it might be an operational challenge. Sometimes it might be a marketing strategy challenge. Sometimes it might be a, a challenge around technical scale and infrastructure and architecture. So you want to make sure that whoever you're, you're bringing in to solve that problem or a series of problems actually has expertise and experience doing exactly that. And you feel confident and they feel confident that, hey, not only have they done this before and can they translate that set of skills to Fundera or your company, um, but it will they can do that while adjusting to the culture of this company. So part of it is absolutely just assessing expertise and skill, right? Mm -hmm. Do they have the toolkit that 
this company needs at this phase of growth to get us through the next 24 months. And I like to think about it in 18, 24 months time horizons, because what this company looked like 18 months ago is significantly different than what it looks like today. Right. And what this company will look like 18 months in the future or 24 months in the future is probably significantly different than what it is today. And we might need other people with different sets of skills who have tackled different types of challenges. And ideally, you know, hopefully that person can grow and scale and, you know, find the right coaching and mentorship either internally or externally to achieve that next stage of scale. But I really think about it in 18 month to 24 month increments. Um, and I'm transparent about all this stuff with everybody too. So they understand exactly where they need to level up over the course of that 18 to 24 months. Um, so part of it is, do they have the right set of skills and expertise? The other parts are honestly cultural, right? Like, are they bought into our mission? Are they revved up by helping empower small business owners and helping millions of them prosper? Mm -hmm. um, do they buy into the way that we actually go into solving this problem? And do they live our values? You know, are they customer centric? Um, are they proactive? Um, are they open and honest with their thoughts and with their feedback and their criticisms? Um, are they egoless, right? Like, so we have a series of values that we actually use to vet candidates as well. And we want to make sure that somebody is going to come in and elevate the game and behave in a certain way that we think is the right way to behave in terms of being respectful towards our customers and their peers inside Fundera. So you've raised capital, you know, multiple times now. What advice would you give to founders that are out raising capital for the first time, like things to, you know, evaluate investors? Because it's a two-way street. Um, yeah, sure. Um, well, this rule cuts both ways. Um, one is, as an entrepreneur, don't be an asshole. Be humble. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking for investors, don't work with assholes. Um, work with people who buy into what you're actually doing and who are going to be supportive of you, not just in terms of achieving your mission and vision, um, but supportive of helping you develop as an entrepreneur as well because most entrepreneurs when they're first starting don't know anything, right? Any idea of what's actually lays ahead and it's hard. And ideally an investor can be significantly more than money. They can also be a coach and a mentor or connect you with the right people along the way to help you develop new skills and think through challenges and solve really complex problems. Um, another thing to do is always do reference checks, right? Look, talk to other portfolio, talk to other companies that, that investor has invested in and get a good understanding of how that investor behaves not just in good times, but in bad times. So it's yeah. always a good thing, not just to talk to that investor's best portfolio companies, on top of the world, <laughs> yeah. talk to the ones that have actually failed Yeah. and see how that investor has behaved in times that are you know, absolutely dire and distressed. Yeah. That will provide you a very, very clear signal of, hey, is this somebody who's gonna help me through the hard times? Or is this gonna be somebody who's only gonna be there when things are good? Um, so I actually think that's a really good lens to use when evaluating investors. The other thing you just really want to look for is, are they going to be value add? Do they understand what I'm trying to do? Do they understand the space? How do they, how, what are the signals that actually demonstrate that they do? Um, so, yeah. Now you talked about, you know, you've done a fair amount of angel investing. Um, so if someone's interested in getting into, you know, writing their own checks for as an angel, what's a, like, what would you advise someone? Like, how do you get started? Um, well, you get started by writing checks to companies that and entrepreneurs that you truly believe in and want to help support. How do you do your initial, like, how do you find the deal flow? Like, how do you find the best entrepreneur? Um, like you would, you, so one of your investments is Sweetgreen. Like how, how did you like get connected yeah. to that company? Listen, I'm, I'm not a professional angel investor. 
So it would be silly of me to go out there and provide a bunch of advice on how to become a great angel investor. Sure. I'm an angel investor because I got extremely lucky with GroupMe mm-hmm. and people for some reason thought that we were good at what we did and wanted to work with us and wanted to have us involved in their companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an extreme luxury and privilege that both Steve and I have had over, after that experience. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying we didn't earn it, right? Like we worked really hard, but luck was a big part of it. Sure. Um, and largely because of that, we've been able to work with and support a lot of terrific entrepreneurs. And I think entrepreneurs, when they embark on their journey, want to have access to and work with and lean on other entrepreneurs who have been through something similar. Because there's a big difference between working with an investor who may not have been an operator and doesn't know what the day-to-day grind is really like, right? Doesn't understand how hard it is to hire people or fire people um, or to make really risky gut-wrenching decisions on a day-to-day basis. And you want people you can talk to who have been through something similar just to make sure you're not going crazy. Um, And that's what I found in a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've supported. Sometimes, sometimes it's just friends too, right? Like other friends are entrepreneurs who go out and start companies and we like to be involved in other people's companies and you're paying it forward nonstop and supporting your friends and they're supporting you. And it just becomes an ecosystem of, you know, entrepreneurs who respect one another and support one another over time. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I wish I, I wish I had some sage advice on how to become an angel investor. Um, I only know my way of doing it, which is, you know, a combination of luck and sharing best practices and hard lessons learned. I know, I know you're busy between building a company and, you know, family, but outside of, you know, whatever time you have left over, like what's, um, what do you like to do? Is it still trying to catch a show on occasion or what music are you listening to these days? Yeah. So, um, still trying to catch as many shows as possible. Um, I just saw fish on new year's Eve here at Madison square garden, which is a great time. Um, always a great time. Um, you know, I have a two year old and a two month old at home right now. So I try and spend as much time as possible with that. Very cool. Well, Jared, thanks so much for taking the time to share your background and all these great stories. And of course, all the, the great advice for our audience. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.